You may remember the bracelets that took American Christianity by storm. Every bracelet held nothing more than four simple letters printed on it. W-W-J-D. Intended to remind the wearer, as we went through life, to ask ourselves, before deciding on any particular course of action, what would Jesus do in this situation? But that isn't the question that burns on the hearts of so many American Christians today. The new question can be represented by WWJVF. Who would Jesus vote for? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Okay, before we get started, allow me to say this is obviously a topic that I think is going to elicit some passion in some people. If after you listen to this, you want to tell me what you think, I welcome it. I'll give you my contact information at the end. Now, I also do hear from a surprising number of responses who haven't listened to whatever the episode is. They've only read the title. And they tell me what they think as well. Those, if I'm honest, I'm a little less interested in. Just a little less. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. And just remember to make those comments civil. I really do enjoy hearing from you. We can disagree and still be kind. Now, allow me, if you will, to begin with, well, a couple of stories. First, I was serving at a church in northeastern Tennessee in a small town called Kingsport, and the presidential election had just taken place, and Bill Clinton had been reelected to a second term in the White House. Now, as is the tradition in many Episcopal churches, we had a portion of the service that is called the Prayers of the People. They are read by a member of the congregation, and they cover a number of topics, just kind of the typical things you would pray for as a part of a church service. Most often, it's a call and response kind of thing. A member of the congregation reads the short petitions, and people respond with their portion of the prayer after each petition. And just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, I will read a very brief portion of this, what the lay person would read who's leading the prayers, and Quark is going to help me here. He's going to read what would be said by the congregation. And as I said, this is just very short to give you a sense of what happened and give you context for the story. Have compassion on those who suffer from any grief or trouble. That they may be delivered from their distress. Give to the departed eternal rest. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Now, the way these are normally done is there are names added to these by the person who reads them. So the first petition that I just read would add names for the sick, and it would go something like this. Have compassion for those who suffer from any grief or trouble, and we offer our prayers this day for Richard, Nina, Stacy, Charnel, and John. And then the petitioner might say something like, are there others, and allow for people to add their own petitions. So as I said, there'd just been an election. Bill Clinton had just been reelected, and we were praying for the president, as well as other elected officials, as I said, like the mayor and governor. Now, I had a member of my congregation who was, let's say, very open about his belief in and loyalty to the Republican Party. He was a very faithful churchman, but he pulled me aside and said, you know, you can keep adding his name into the prayers. I don't like it. I don't want you to do it, but you can keep doing it. But I want you to know I will never, ever offer a prayer 
for Bill Clinton. Now, quickly, before we get stuck there, I want to tell you another story from another church. This was right after Donald Trump had been elected, and we added him to the prayers. I had a parishioner come up and ask me, some I demand that I remove his name from the prayers because they didn't want to have anything to do with praying for him, nor did they want to be part of a church that mentioned his name. The point here is that there are people on both sides who feel strongly that the decisions being made in the voting booth are nothing short of a real-life battle between good and evil. And to add the opponent's name into our prayers in the church service is to give a platform to the evil and the enemy that they are battling against. Just remember that this position is held by people who would argue that what is taking place here in the election is too important to, in any way, sacrifice principles. Jesus, both sides would agree, that's probably the only thing both sides would agree on, Jesus would want us to stand our ground, never compromise, never associate with the enemy, and certainly not pray for their welfare. Because Jesus would be, is, on their side. Of that, they are certain. Which brings me to the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. All of this is interesting because Jesus was pretty clear about praying for the people you consider to be your enemies. Also, there's nothing anywhere in Scripture in which Jesus takes a stance on any of the political issues of his time. Monday morning, after the Super Bowl, I read several posts on Facebook that had already gone viral. They were angry and judgment-laden posts referring to the obscenity of money spent on Super Bowl ads that could have been spent on feeding people and serving the poor and the suffering. Now, if there were a vote one year and all of the companies who were going to run ads in the Super Bowl asked us to say whether or not we would like to have that money used to serve the poor, let me just say, I absolutely voice my delight with the redirection of those funds. But when I read those posts, I was also reminded of something. My years in the ministry. There comes a time for any congregation in which the roof of the church needs to be repaired. A new sign needs to be put up in front of the church or the kids' Sunday school classrooms are in need of being updated. Something like that. There's some sort of capital improvement that needs to happen. And normally this means we as a church will be raising some money above our regular operating budget. Now, every church I've ever been a part of has been pretty generous with taking from its regular funds to do ministry for the poor. Invariably, in these situations, I have a few parishioners, though, who say it's obscene that we spend this money on ourselves when the poor have so many more pressing needs than we do. All the money, every single dime, they would occasionally say, should be going to the poor. Now, let's forget the fact that if we fail to pay the staff, pay the electrical bills, provide programs of any kind to anyone in the church, there will shortly be no church at all, and there will no longer be any funds to do anything with. What's most interesting to me is that in almost every single case that I can think of where somebody said this, 
The person who is saying this lives in a home with several extra bedrooms, sometimes had more than one membership to various clubs in town, and though working in a great job, making a great income, living an enviable life that most people in the rest of the world would love to have, that person gives a total of something like $200 a year to the church. I've never met a truly generous person who spends much time worrying about what other people are doing with their money. The point here is that it is very easy to decide how the world would be a better place if other people lived their lives differently. It's very easy to believe that if we could change things at the ballot box, if we could yell loud enough If we shame other people enough for their life decisions, we can make the world a better place. First, let me say that the world has never been made a better place by shame nor judgment. Never. If Jesus were to come to your home this evening and join you at your dinner table, I assume that you would have some questions. Actually, so many questions to ask him. Oh, I have a question. If Jesus is at your table for dinner and you want to say a blessing beforehand, do you ask him to give thanks for the food? I mean, it seems rather strange. He would just be thanking himself, wouldn't he? Or do you just look at him and say thank you instead of saying the blessing? Okay, Quark, that is as fascinating as that question is. We might be getting lost in the weeds here. At some point during his visit in your home to have a meal with you, some of those questions that you are asking... Oh, you mean questions like, after you've asked, why did you even create tobacco if it's such a problem for us? Why does the ostrich look so funny? And why is the avocado pit so bizarrely large? Okay, yeah, sure. After things like that, you would maybe turn to some other questions. In all likelihood, at some point, you'd probably turn to some questions of politics. And here is what I think Jesus would say when you asked him such a question. When you said, what's the right political party? Who do you think you would vote for, Jesus? Jesus would say when you asked questions like that, I'm pretty sure. Let's not talk about others. Let's talk about you, your life, your choices. The most clearly political question that Jesus gets in his entire ministry is about money and power. That's kind of the ultimate political combination as a question, isn't it? Jesus is asked if it is right to pay taxes. This is Mark chapter 12. Then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Now, let's forget for a moment that the question was asked to trap him, because 
regardless of that, I guarantee that the moment the question was asked, every single listener who was surrounding Jesus leaned a little bit forward. Everyone wanted to know his answer. Everyone secretly hoped that Jesus was going to be the first to start a sovereign citizen movement. But what Jesus said was interesting. So Jesus, in answer to the question, does something brilliant and profound. He asks for a coin. Now, when he is given the coin, he asks whose image is on the coin. But before we move forward with that, because that's brilliant in and of its own right, let's stop to talk about the brilliance of even asking for the coin. So I come to Jesus and I ask this question. I ask Jesus, is it right to pay money to the government? And Jesus responds, by asking me for a coin. I reach into my pocket and I pull out a coin. Well, I've already implicated myself in that moment. I'm carrying the money of the government, which I didn't seem to have any problems receiving. I've clearly bought into the receiving part of the governmental system. I just don't want to be a part of the rest of it. You know, the paying taxes. Jesus asks whose image is on the coin and then says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. The biblical reference to everyone at that time was clear. You are made in the image of God. So spend your time concerned with giving yourself into faithful service of your Creator, in whose image you were made. Look, if you want to elicit change in this world, spend less time trying to change others and more time being the change that you believe God wants to see in the world. I quote people all the time as a part of this podcast. Most of the people I agree with sometimes, and the same person I will disagree with another time. The next person I'm about to quote, I can't think of a single quote of his that I've ever thought, I disagree with that. Every single one of his quotes, I believe, speaks the truth and calls me to be a better person. And that person, not surprisingly, is Martin Luther King Jr., Ultimately, if you turn to the quotes of Martin Luther King Jr. to seek how to change the world, you might expect that he would have said right off the bat, through legislation and the ballot box. Winning at the ballot box was the way to win and ultimately change the world. But instead, he starts from a very different place. These are his words. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. He says, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Finally, this quote, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Look, I want to be clear. I believe the vote is a remarkable thing in our society, and I vote because I think our voices matter. But ultimately, I think there's an important distinction to be made here. You were not born a Democrat. You were not born a Republican. You were not born a conservative nor a liberal. And you won't die any of those things either. You were, though, when you were born, made in the image of God. And if you and I step into the ballot box and cast a ballot for what we think is right, but are filled with hate and judgment and scorn for others, then we have missed the point and all is lost. That's all for today. One 
of the most difficult elements for people of faith, particularly in a free democratic society, I think, is that we often want Jesus to side with our politics. And Jesus, in turn, really isn't interested in that. Jesus wants us to follow his ways. We are called to live our lives consistent with being created in the image of God. All of this is one of those topics where there's a lot of scripture. There is so much scripture to back this up. But I'll leave you with this last piece from 1 Corinthians. Sarah and I included this passage at our wedding, and it touches me deeply every single time I hear it. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Let me know what you think. Send me your comments in an email or jump over to YouTube and leave me a comment below the video version of this episode. My email address is dan at skypilot.zone. And on your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for joining us here today and being part of the SkyPilot Faith Quest community. This is a great place to ask questions you wouldn't feel comfortable or safe asking in other places. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.